Pioneer, it's good to see each one of you. It's good to see each one of you, and it's good because I get to welcome you to our summer series. So this is our summer series preached by the associate pastors. We're starting a series that we've called Adventures in Faith Walking. Adventures in Faith Walking. This is a series, like all series that we preach here at Pioneer, it comes for a specific time on the calendar for a specific reason. And right now, we recognize that as a church, we are in the middle of transition. We're in the middle of transition between two leaders, and one of them, Pastor Shane, is coming in just a few weeks, 1st of July. We recognize that we as a church are in transition, but many of us as individuals are also in a period of transition. This is the summertime on an academic campus, and we know that summertime means transitions happen for students For all those who are working, for families, transition is right now. We're sliding in between spring and summer, and for those that have allergies, you very well know the pollen is here, and transition is occurring. And so today, we are starting on a series that traces the life of Moses. We're tracing the life of Moses through all the major changes and upheaval that he went through from Egypt to the borders of the promised land. Moses spent an entire lifetime learning to walk by faith in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of changes, in the middle of all these massive life life changes. Moses had to learn to walk by faith. And so at the end of the series, we hope that you come away with a better understanding of what that looks like so that you can turn to your own life and say, I can trust in God as I step forward into the middle of change and uncertainty. Let's bow our heads. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather once again and hear a little bit about how you worked in the lives of people you loved. Lord, you're still the God that works in lives, and so we're asking that as we listen to the story, as we hear what you did, that everything again be you and only you, but we can take to heart that you can do the same thing for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Before I begin, I should also thank Dr. Scotty Baker, one of Andrew's own scholars and experts on the Exodus. We had an incredibly insightful conversation. He shared with me some wisdom from his gleanings on the, on the book. And much of the historical context and background shared today comes from that conversation. So thank you, Dr. Baker. When things don't go according to your plan. It's the title that we have today. When things don't go according to your plan. When things don't go according to your plan, I want you to take one sentence away from this sermon. If that's all you get, I want you to take one sentence away, and that is that your plans might have changed, but God hasn't. Nothing is wasted at the well. Your plans might have changed, but God hasn't, and nothing is wasted at the well. If that is the only thing you take away, good. Nothing is wasted at the well. We think about the life of Moses, and Moses began his life under dangerous times. He was born under the threat of death. And for three months, his Hebrew mom stepped out in faith and hid him away, defying Pharaoh's orders. But eventually, her maternity leave was up, and she she would be forced to go back to work just like all the other Hebrews were. And so what she does is she, she places Moses in this Noah's Ark-like Hebrew basket 
which was basically a, a, an ancient lunchbox, and stores him safely, strategically, in the Nile River. Strategically in the Nile River because she leaves him in a spot where she knows that the daughter of Pharaoh will go down to perform a fertility ritual at the Nile River. She leaves him there in the basket and she steps away and she leaves him and his fate up to God and his older sister. As I can only imagine, she says, I can't see what's about to happen. I don't know if this is going to work out the way I think it is. You stay here and just report back. Just nod your head yes or no. And so she leaves Moses there, and as Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river, she comes down, performs the ritual, and she can only hear the crying of a baby in this basket. And she, so she goes over, drawn to the sound, looks in the basket, and picks Moses up. And right then and there, Moses' sister, with lightning speed, runs out and says, I have a plan. Mrs. Pharaoh's daughter, I can help you out. I know how we can make this work. And Pharaoh's daughter agrees to the plan, and so Moses' older sister convinces her to let Moses come back to the family for a couple more years, for a little bit longer. And so he does. But eventually, Moses has to go back to the palace. He has to go back to the palace, and he's there adopted by Pharaoh himself. And with Pharaoh adopted by Pharaoh, with Moses adopted by Pharaoh himself, he's no longer under the threat of death. But now he's heir to the biggest throne in the world. But he's still a Hebrew. He's a Hebrew living in the Egyptian courts, and so he has this dual identity with part of it bottled up, shoved deep down inside. He continues to grow up like an Egyptian. He's given an Egyptian name, honoring an Egyptian god. But the author of Hebrew, uh, the author of, uh, of the Hebrew author of Exodus, wipes away the first part of that name, and all we're left with is Moses, which just means brought out from dot dot dot. He keeps his true identity hidden away because he's half Egyptian, but he's half Hebrew. But he feels a sense of solidarity. He feels a sense that his people are not being treated the way they should. And so he feels compelled to go and watch, to go and see what it would have been like if he hadn't been rescued in the basket. And that's where we we find him in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Moses goes out. And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way, looking that way, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrews fighting and he asks the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, Pharaoh tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Moses runs away. He runs away. He runs as fast as he can, and he goes to Midian, and he sits down by this well in the middle of the desert. And the last thing that Moses would have said was, this feels right. 
He would have said, this doesn't feel right. This feels, this feels wrong. Everything about this feels wrong. I'm here sitting by a, a well in the middle of the desert. My life leading up to this had been going one way, but somehow I ended up on this other course that I don't quite know how one thing led to another, but here I am and everything I've ever known is gone. This was a moment of failure. It was a moment where Moses looked around at the pieces of his life and looked back and said, everything I've done was a miscalculation and a mistake. It was a mess. The years of bottled up angst seeing his family treated the way it was must have eaten away at him. And he was put in this position seemingly appointed by God to enact change. And then all of a sudden when he steps in to do something small, it all turns on him. It all turns on him. And then he has to run. He has to run from the Egyptian royal palace across the Sinai desert to Midian for miles and miles away. And here, sitting beside a well, Moses was no longer second to Pharaoh. He was second to the sheep coming to get water. And he sat there reflecting on the mess of his life. And I can only imagine, I can only imagine uh, him growing up in Pharaoh's court, but being a Hebrew... I can only imagine the whispers that he heard, the whispers of liberator, deliverer, rescuing king, divinely appointed by God for this exact moment to help us. And all of that, all of that must have instilled a sense of purpose in Moses' heart. All of that He must have felt that he was there for a reason, that that God had placed him there to do something big. All of that must have instilled a sense that God was leading his every step. But he was treated like the criminal he was when he tried to do something small. He was forced out of the plans that he had made for himself. He was forced out of everything that he thought would work. And so he sat by a well in Midian. And I think, I think that there's some of you in the congregation today that are sitting by your own wells. Just like Moses was thousands of years ago, you sit by your own well. You let the tears and the heartache pour out as you sit by your own well. Your well might be a very public well. You might have a very public well like when your spouse blindsides you with paperwork that says they don't, they don't love you anymore and they want to leave. Or your well might be public and shameful. The moments that you're pushed out of your community because of a few moments of indiscretion. You might have mixed wells. It's a, it might be a mixed well. That time that you get the phone call with the bad diagnosis from your doctor, the same week that they patted your back and off into retirement. There are other wells that you have. There are the private wells. The private wells where you get the third, fourth, and 14th rejection letter for that job that you know you are qualified for. There are also traumatizing wells where you get the phone call that another loved one has passed away, that you've had another miscarriage, that someone else has turned their back on you. There are those traumatizing wells, and then there are helpless wells. The helpless wells for when the business is going bad, the sales are down, it's not your fault, but there's nothing you can do but pick up the calls as the creditors ask for their money. There are helpless wells, but there's also uncertain wells. Uncertain wells are the ones that you look down into the murky, deep 
dark waters swirling around and you don't see any future, any direction, any plan or any purpose, but everyone else seems to have their life all together. Yeah, we all have our own well and we're all going to come to our own well at some point in our lives. They can be joyful, they can be awful, or they can be both at the same time. These are wells that we sit by in the middle of massive change. And we sit by these wells during uncertainty with the baggage of every plan we ever purposed, every hope we ever held, every dream we ever desired, every craving we ever cradled, every mountain or molehill that never moved. We sit there with every anxiety that ever attacked, every mistake we ever made. We sit there with all of these silently judging us for every action we ever made. And we sit there thinking that our old life that we had just isn't coming back. We all come to our own arid, windswept, dry, dusty wells at some point. We all do. And these wells, they become changing points. They become points of distinction in our life. These points of distinction change everything about our life. And those changes change us. It's almost like that well is, a, is the period at the end of a sentence where the first half of the sentence is cut off, never to be edited again. That part of your life is gone and pushed to the side and the next one has begun. There's a space and you can't ever go back to that. And as you sit there by your own personal well, I wonder what your posture is like. What's your posture at the well? What, what position do you take by the well? What emotions do you express by the well? Are you the one that wallows by the well, bemoaning all that never will be again? Are you the one who is angry at the well, lashing out at all the other people sitting at their wells? Or are you empty and silent at the well, watching life engage on the outside while you're not part of it? Are you the person that is negotiating at the well, trying to get a fraction of their life back, saying, if I can only get something back, that would be enough? Or maybe you're the one that simply disbelieves, saying, if I only woke up from this nightmare, it'll all be over. And I think that all of those postures, all of those positions at the well, have a place in the lament process. All of those have a place somewhere in the lament process. But I think that there might be another posture that's just a little bit more helpful for the long term. Another posture that just might give you a slight, slight edge for the long term. And that posture, that posture is, are you sitting at the well watching in wonder? Are you sitting at the well watching in wonder for who or what God will place in your path? Are you sitting at the well watching and waiting for God to do something? Because God will always do something. And I, I bet that he put somebody or something in your path. Because that's what happened to Moses. In the middle of wallowing and wandering, Moses sits down at his well exhausted. <clears throat> Think about this. He had just run from one nation to another under the threat of death. He'd run across a desert. He'd spent hours, days on the, on the run alone. And here he is, finally at a place that he can sit, exhausted. But he's there and he starts watching. 
He starts watching all the other well-gatherers go about their life, doing their thing, and there he is alone beside it. But then all of a sudden, off towards the distance, his eyes catch something happening. There's movement off to the distance. There's a group of male shepherds harassing a group of seven female shepherds. (coughs) And there Moses is, and he sees this happen, And his fight or flight instinct kicks in. The amygdala in his brain kicks in. The adrenal glands start pumping adrenaline. The cortisol levels come up to increase his focus. His muscles become hypertense. He becomes hyper-aware, alert of everything that's happening. Suddenly, the man who is purposeless has a purpose. And so he stands up. He stands up and he jumps up, ready to intervene. The text tells us, Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs with water to water their, their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up, and he came to their rescue and watered their flock. Moses intervenes. He jumps up. He combats the shepherds, and he stands in the gap preventing what could have been awful. The deliverer once again stands for somebody that needs help. But then the shepherds go away, and the deliverer becomes the helper. The helper draws the water out. And I don't know how many sheep were there, but I can only imagine it was a big deal. So he draws the water out, and he gives water to the sheep. They say their pleasantries. They say their thanks. And then the helper goes away. The girls go back to their their home, and Moses is back to being purposeless, sitting by a well. But the girls go back to their father. Their father asks, how are you back so soon? And they tell the story. And in the story, they say, an Egyptian came and rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And then verse 20, where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses comes and he agrees to stay he stays with the man, who, and the man gives him his daughter Zipporah in marriage. And then verse 22, it says, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Moses, Ruel, the seven daughters. Most people know Ruel as Jethro. Jethro is the wise father-in-law in in the story of the Exodus that helps Moses later on in life divide up the the, the Hebrew people into the nation of Israel. He gives counsel as a mentor and a guide for Moses throughout his life and his leadership. But right now, the the, the author of the text doesn't use the, the name Jethro. Instead, he uses the name Ruel. And Ruel is most likely a family clan name here, a title, if you will. And the title Ruel means friend of God. And I think it's a subtle reminder that you never know who will come across your way when you are sitting at your well. You never know who you will meet in connection with your well experience. You never know where one of God's friends will end up when you need them most. Because of all the wells in all the world, Moses ended up at the one well that God's friend came to. And there, God's friend invited him in. I suggest to you today that if you decide to watch in wonder beside your own personal well, you will be surprised at who shows up. 
You'll be surprised at where a friend of God pops up in the place you least expect it. You'll be surprised because God has friends everywhere. God has friends in the lowest of the low places waiting to come into your orbit to talk to you. The truth is that you might not be ready to talk to God himself, but God will send one of his friends to prepare the way. But if you spend all your time wallowing at the well, you just might miss the mentorship, the support, the community that God has provided and is just waiting for you to take advantage of. So instead of wallowing at the well, maybe a better posture is to watch and wonder for what God's going to do. Watch in wonder. When Moses showed up at the well, God took him at his most worthless and reminded him that he was worthwhile. Even for a few moments, he had a purpose again as the deliverer. God was reminding Moses each and every step of the way that when I look at you, I see somebody with purpose. God took one look at Moses at the well and said, yo, Boy, (laughs) I'm no Dwight Nelson, and that's the last time I'll do it. One of our one of our elderly saints in first service. After I did that, uh, she she shouted out, "Just not the same," (laughs) and I agree. But we miss you, Dwight. And we hope you're doing well in retirement. Same to you, Karen. God took one look at Moses at the well. And he said, you don't know me very well, Moses. You don't know me at all. You spent a a lifetime in the Egyptian palace. You don't know me at all. But I've been waiting for this moment. I've been waiting for this moment because the, the ring of Egyptian power is no longer in your ears. Finally, there's a moment where you can hear my soft, subtle voice. And then God shouted out across the entire universe for everyone to hear. And he said, Moses, at one point you were drawn out from the Nile and called a child of Pharaoh, but now I'm drawing you out from this well experience and calling you my child. And God is in the same business of shouting out across the universe today for you and for me. God's still in the business of saying, I'm drawing you out to call you to myself. He says, I'm drawing you out of the hardest moments of your life to call you to myself. I'm drawing you out of the despair to call you to myself. He says, I'm drawing you out of the chaos and the confusion and the trouble and the difficulty and the change to call you to myself. Because he says, I created you. I redeemed you. I love you. And I'm calling you out to myself. He says, I'm drawing you out. I'm drawing you out for me. And the, the, the theologian Augustine, I think, felt that drawing out by God when he penned the words that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless till we find rest in you. God is calling you out. He's drawing you out of your own well experience and calling you to himself. And he's going to remind you that you are still his child. No matter what's happened in your life, you are still a child of God. No matter what the first part of your life looked like, no matter what the change looks like, you're still a child of God, and he has a purpose for you. 
And the beauty is, is that he'll remind you you're a child by taking your well experience and repurposing it for your next steps in life. Because he wants to remind you that although your plans have changed, he hasn't. And nothing is wasted at the well. This wasn't the last time that Moses would come to this well here in Midian. No, he takes, he takes on the, the family name. He takes on the family job. He, he follows up with the family business. And he brings his sheep to this well day in and day out. And this well that was a symbol of all the heartache and everything that he had left behind in Egypt suddenly becomes the one source of sustaining life in the middle of a desert. He comes to his well almost daily to give life to his new purpose, his sheep. God took the well that was the the symbol of heartache and repurposed it to be the the life-sustaining fuel for his new purpose. For the purpose-driven go-getter, that must have been torture. Being in the middle of the Midian desert. But slowly but surely, you have to wonder, did he start realizing that he had a new purpose? That God was taking something old and repurposing it for something new and beautiful? I wonder. I wonder. What I can tell you today is that when you come to your own well, when you come to your own well of whatever personal heartache or difficulty or change that you're facing, when you ever come to that well, nothing is lost there. Some people feel like the time that they had, the time that they had spent in their first part of their life, the energy and the effort they had spent to build things up to only to have that taken away was worthless. But God's saying nothing is lost at the well. Nothing is lost. All your past is not lost at the well, because God can take that and repurpose it into something new and beautiful. And I think about the story of Ken Oliver. Ken Oliver got out of jail at the age of 52. He had spent the last 23 years in prison for theft. Of those 23 years, he spent eight years in solitary confinement for possessing a book that you can easily get at the Andrews University or Berrien Springs Public Library. Eight years in solitary confinement by himself would have driven most people insane. But in an interview, he says, the thing that kept him and his mind fresh was reading everything he could. He picked up every book that he was allowed to have, and he read it from art to history, to politics, to literature, to other languages, to even picking up the state penal code and memorizing it so that he had a better command of the law than most lawyers do. Slowly, the time ticked by, year after year after year, until one day, one day, a corporate lawyer somehow heard of Ken Oliver's case, and he ran back to his firm and convinced them, we need to take this on for free. We need to do this. They said yes. So the lawyer came back. Ken Oliver said yes. And so they carefully crafted their appeal. Word by word, making sure that each word meant what they said it would, that each precedent that they were citing actually would do the job of making the argument. And they sent in their appeal to the state, and then they waited. They waited and kept waiting. Would the appeal even be heard? Would the appeal come back with a positive positive motion? Like, will will we be able to take this someplace? 
And finally, finally the result came in the form of a settlement offer. Mr. Ken Oliver, fearful for how long the trial might go, said, I'll take it. My freedom and $125,000 for my trouble get me out of here. And even though the money would not repay a fraction of the, of the difficulty experienced, he recognized that his experience could be the catalyst to repurpose his own well. It was the training ground for a life's work that has begun, and he has saved thousands from similar experiences since. And this has happened in the four years since he has left prison. Mr. Ken Oliver has become a philanthropist. He's become a public policy director. He spent hours in front of state legislatures arguing for prison reform, for recidivism reduction, and opportunities for those that wouldn't have them otherwise. Since leaving prison, Mr. Ken Oliver has recognized that the source of his most difficult trials could be repurposed to be the fuel for his new purpose. And I think that that story and what Patriarchs and Prophets has to say about Moses gives a great reminder. Many would have dispensed with that long period of toil and obscurity, deeming it a great loss of time. But infinite wisdom called him who was to become the leader of his people to spend 40 years in the humble work of a shepherd. The habits of caretaking, of self-forgetfulness, and tender solicitude for his flock thus developed would prepare him to become the compassionate, long-suffering shepherd of Israel. No advantage that human training or culture could bestow could be a substitute for this experience. Moses had to recognize that growth was not linear. It wasn't a straight-line shot from zero to a hundred success. Moses had to learn that growth is not a straight line. It's a modern lie that tells us that we're supposed to get better, fitter, faster, more attractive every year. It's a lie that says once we feel ready, we're, we're ready to succeed. Because growth isn't a straight line. Our life has setbacks. Our life has challenges. And there's times where we are set back because we have to unlearn before we can learn and grow. The thing about setbacks, though, is that God takes setbacks and can make them his greatest victory. God can take the, the, the difficulties and the pit stops and make them the places where you learn and grow so that God can be victorious in ways you would have never seen before. If you're in the middle of your desert, sitting by your own well day in and day out, Maybe it's time to stop and think about how God is using that well experience for the next stages of your life, for the next little bit of purpose, the next plan that he has, how God is going to take that setback and launch you forward with the things that you've learned. Because spiritual growth isn't a straight line. Your relational growth isn't a straight line. Your emotional, healthy growth isn't a straight line. You have setbacks, but you grow from those. And in the same way, God wants to take you and grow you and stretch you because the next step of the way, he's got something amazing planned just for you to accomplish that he can only do through you if you let him. And the truth is, the truth is, you have to let him. Every step of the way, you have to let him. You have to say yes. You have to say yes. Let me, let me be a part of this. Let me be a part of this. Whatever's happening, I don't know right now, but whatever's happening, let me, let me be a part, God. Whatever you have for me. I'll take it. I'll take it. 
Nothing is wasted at the well. Nothing is wasted at your personal well. Because the, the Bible is chocked full of stories that people only started living out their God-giving purpose later on in life. Because the, God's trying to teach everyone that he can do more with one or two years that you give him than an eternity of life that you have out, outside of him. It's why each month you tithe. Because tithing is a reminder that God can do more with the 10% you give than the 90% you hold back. All God wants is the permission to take you and mold you and use you. And he can do incredible things with just the little bit that you give. Imagine what you, can, what you can do with the all of you that you give. When you lean in to his purpose and his plan. When you lean into what he's doing, imagine what he could do with all of you. Imagine the life that could be lived. Imagine the victories won and for him. Because he wants to take your setbacks and make them success. For him and his kingdom. So nothing, no, Nothing is wasted at the well. Nothing is wasted at the well. As we wrap up today, it's important to acknowledge just how gut-wrenching it can be to have your plans and your future changed. When you've set your entire life up in one direction, only to have that cut down at the knees, only to have your identity taken away from you, that is gut-wrenching. And it's important to acknowledge just how gut-wrenching it is when your plans have changed. But your plans, they might have changed. But no matter what our plans look like, you and I can take heart. You and I can take heart because no matter how much our plans have changed, God hasn't. God hasn't changed. The often quoted Jeremiah 29 11 tells us that he has better plans. He has plans that he thinks towards for us that are better plans, that have a future and a hope. They're better than anything you and I could ever come up with. And so the plans that we have to say, those are in the past now, well, God can repurpose all that, all that experience and that life for something beautiful, for a plan that you and I can't even imagine. He's just waiting to work it out for you. Because God can still bring victory from tragedy. He can still pur- create a purpose and a plan when you feel pointless. And if God can do that for Moses, what can he do for you? Your plans have changed. God hasn't. Nothing is lost at the well. Nothing is lost. Your journey, though, might be frustratingly slow. It might have detours and pit stops. It might have repeated trips back to your well as you learn, unlearn, and relearn. But nothing is lost during your well experience, no matter how long you have to wait. As we're wrapping up, I'm going to call the the praise team up behind me. No matter how long you have to wait, God is still working with you. God is still calling you out, drawing you out and calling you to himself for the promised hope and a better future. And he says that one day, one day things are going to take off. You just wait for it. The purpose he has for you will be accomplished. So I say, your plans have changed. God hasn't. Nothing is lost at the well. So wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Moses would spend 40 years in the desert leading sheep. After years and years of waiting, God would again call Moses. This time, God would call him at a burning bush. 
to the next stage of life. But you'll have to wait till next week for that part of the story. Today, though, remember that your plans have changed. God hasn't, and nothing is lost at the well, so wait on the Lord. <laughs>